Kings chapter 18, we find the nation of Israel ensconced in a prolonged drought. If you know anything about droughts, especially back then, um, there, was, there was no way to escape, really. I mean, this crop started drying up, and what, what always comes with drought? Famine always comes. And um, I, I've done enough uh, study on famine areas in the world in preparation for other messages and stuff to know that uh, you don't want to be anywhere near famine. You don't want to be anywhere near famine. And, and this is what was happening to the children of Israel. And the reason that it was happening is because they had been so blatantly and terribly and grossly disobedient to God's word and to his clear call upon the nation. He had called this nation to be a light to the world. And, and they were just adding to the darkness. They weren't, there weren't adding any light at all. Their leaders were reprobate. They were leading them into, into the worship of Baal and, and other small g gods. And so God, God kind of judged that nation. And, and in 1 Kings chapter 18, we find it. And, and, but now, you know, the, the time of drought is, is just about over, and God's about to bring a time of refreshment. He's about to bring the rain once again. But there were some things, before he did that, there were some things that needed to be addressed. There needed to be repentance on a grand, glorious scale by his children. That's what was needed before God brought the rains. So, some of you know the story, a historic confrontation between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of Yahweh. Elijah was set up on Mount Carmel, and he was the contest, basically. Some of you remember this. Each would arrange uh, an offering for their God. And the God who answered in fire, what? He was God. God, obviously, is the real God. So the prophets of Baal called on Baal, who, whose name meant the God of fire and water. should be easy to answer in fire. I mean, that's, your, that's what you do, Right? And, 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 and they called on him all day long, and hour after hour after hour of screaming to the God, their God, Baal, nothing happened. And Elijah started, I love this, because, you know, when I think, you know what, I, sh- I shouldn't be sarcastic in my humor. I look at guys like Elijah, and I say, I got good company. And he starts saying, well, maybe, maybe Baal is sleeping. Maybe he left for the afternoon. He starts going through this list of things of, you know, t- in a sense, taunting them, sarcastically taunting them. Because he knows Baal isn't going to answer. So they redoubled their efforts, and they start screaming at the top of their lungs, and they start taking knives and swords and started cutting themselves all over their bodies, and their bodies were red with blood, and they did it hour after hour after hour until they got to the evening, and they all just collapsed. I mean, you scream for, you know, 10 hours or so, uh, that'll knock anybody out. And then it was Elijah's turn. So after arranging his own offering, taking wood, laying it on the altar, laying the the sacrificial lamb on the altar, he did something just to prove his point. He took something that was really worth its weight in gold back then. Well, what's worth its weight in gold in a time of famine? Water. And he took water and he again and again and again took, you know, multi-huge, you know, uh, gallons of these gigantic jugs, and he poured it over the arranged uh, sacrifice. 
And I'm sure people, as they were looking at it, you know, the, their mouth was kind of like, you know, even drier than it was five seconds before. And he said, why are you wasting this precious commodity? He was wasting it to prove a point, and he wasn't really wasting it. Again and again and again, he did it. And he cried out. He said, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah heard the voice of God and he prepared the scene for God. Then he watched as God answered in great power. And after the people had repented of their, uh, their sin, their duplicitous loyalty, it was time for the drought to end. It was time for the people to receive God's blessing once again. It was time for him to do a mighty work once again among his people. You know, I thought about titling this little sermon, Confessions of a Local Church Pastor, because that's what it really is. And some of the stuff that I want to share with you this morning, this Vision Sunday, is frankly a bit embarrassing, personally, for me. But I have always preached, and I have always believed, that change, revival, always starts with one word, repentance. It starts with repentance. It always starts with setting the stage for God to work. Let me tell you something. For those of you who don't know me, or maybe newer, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I came to Christ as a young child. My mother, who was a believer, a young believer, not every night, but pretty occasionally, would, would, would take uh, her three children and sit them in the living room and she would do the only thing she knew how to do. She'd, she'd read them the daily bread. We still have it. They still, you know, they, we, they still write that thing. And I, I'm, I'm, every time I see it, I, I, I do remember. And I was a little kid. I was five years old. And I remember she read the daily bread that night. And, 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 and you know, a fi- the best way that a five-year-old can understand personal sin and, and substitutionary death, someone paying a price for me, paying a price for my disobedience, paying a price for how, you know, I, when, when I sinned, and I understood what that was, you know, the best way a five-year-old can do that, I believed, and I know, I know to this day that that was the day that the Holy Spirit came and took residence in my life. I know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. Our mother brought us to a small Baptist church in a nearby town, led by led by the greatest single shepherd I've ever come upon. You know, in the Bible, when you see the word pastor, you know what the word pastor means? It means shepherd. And, and I always believed that Pastor Robert Hoover's picture would be next to the word sh- shepherd in any standard dictionary of Christian terms. If you sneezed at church on a Sunday, you knew that Monday you were probably going to get a visit from, you know, Pastor Hoover, unannounced. Always would drive my mother, you know, insane, uh, you know, when she rang the bell and she looks out and she sees it's him. Uh, but, he, you know, that's just the way he was. He was an extraordinary shepherd. He was the greatest shepherd I've ever had the privilege to be around. One thing he was not the greatest at was preaching. 
he had he had a habit you, you, you know you listen to preachers you know i'm sure i do this sometimes but you listen to preachers who just go off on a side trail and then they're here and then and then they're back here and then all of us and then and then they're here and this is where they speak for the rest of the, it's like and I, wait where how and I, when i was a kid i thought it was because i was a kid then i get older i said no he just he stinks. I mean, he's just not, he's not, not uh, good at preaching. I, I, and it took me a long time to realize that. But he was the greatest shepherd I had ever known. And one thing, one thing I saw, his church grew. A guy who was, who was really weak in the pulpit, but a great shepherd, and his church grew. It was a generally healthy church as I look at it now. And, 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 you know, I really started to think back then, when a church is generally healthy, when they're generally doing the right things, they will grow numerically. They have to. Larger growing churches were good and, and God-blessed, and non-growing smaller churches were, well, not blessed, or in my mind, bad. By the time I left at the age of 23, it was one of the larger evangelical churches on Long Island's South Shore. Another man, my older cousin, Dan Mercaldo, who has spoken at this church a number of times. He began a church in the mid-1960s on Staten Island with 16 people in the basement of a local bank. I remember going to see him along with my proud-as-a-peacock mother. And uh, with little, I remember having white buck shoes. I, I honestly do. I remember this, going there and having this little tiny congregation and, and standing there and looking at this this godlike figure, because that's what he seemed like to me as a, as a young boy. He was interesting, he was powerful, he was entertaining. And I somewhat idolized him. I hung on every word. Uh, when I got to be driving, was able to drive, I used to occasionally drive to Staten Island, which is always scary when you're 18 or 19 or so, going over the Verrazano Bridge, you know. I mean, uh, and just because it's because I had to hear him every now and then. I remember his first property that his church bought. Then I remember the second. Then I remember the third. And each move was necessitated by an ever-enlarging congregation. 250, 400, 600, 1,000. And every time I visited him, it seemed as if the church had grown exponentially. But I really wasn't blown away by that. I didn't think that was unusual. The reason was because larger growing churches were good. And they were blessed by God. Non-growing, smaller churches were bad. Or at least, at least they weren't blessed. Generally, a healthy church is a numerically growing church. Small churches then were bad and large churches were good. I grew up. I went to Bible college and then seminary out in Denver, Colorado. Every church in Denver that was attended by students at Denver Seminary seemed to be, every one of them, large. I'd never seen so many large churches in my entire life, having grown up in Long Island. Marion and I went to one of the smaller churches that the students went to, South Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Yes, I went to a Presbyterian <laughs> church. It was pastored by a gracious, humble, passionate man by the name of Dale Schlafer. And I, I just love Dale. There was about 600 people in that congregation. I said it was one of the smaller ones that the students were, were, were going to. But it, too, was growing. Again, it was growing because generally, what, is health, what, what happens to healthy churches? Well, they grow. Small churches, 
you know, obviously they're not. Uh, small churches are bad and large churches are, are generally good. In seminary, I took courses in church growth. I read books by Peter Wagner, a church, church, growth, F, uh, church growth expert who at that time was all the rage in the mid-1980s. When I left seminary to plant a church, I figured that maybe I would not be as great a shepherd as Robert Hoover. In fact, I was pretty sure I wouldn't be. I probably wouldn't be as amazing a preacher as Dan Mercaldo. I doubt I would be as passionate and humble as Dale Schlafer. But this church growth thing, well, you know what? It really didn't seem to be that hard after all. Long Island, New York City, Denver, Colorado, it seemed that if your congregation was somewhat of a purpose-driven church, if you as a pastor had an IQ anywhere near 100, you know, give or take, a little under, a little over, uh, if you didn't slur your words, if you had a rudimentary grasp on biblical theology, all you needed to do is basically sit back and watch it grow. Because that's what churches do. Churches grow. Small churches, though, aren't growing, so there's something wrong with them. Because small churches are bad and Large churches are good. They're blessed by God. My first church outside of Chicago, Illinois, about 20 minutes down the road from an, well, was 20 minutes down the road from an upstart church that began in a movie theater in all places. Could you imagine? And it was led by a maverick pastor who at that point had had zero theological training. Willow Creek Community Church, which was fast becoming one of the most well-known mega churches in the country, was led by a guy by the name of Bill Hybels. And that church, in the time that I was in Chicago, the Chicago area, became both a blessing and a curse to me. It was a curse because every other week, someone from our little church of 60 or so attendees would come up and say to me, hey, did you hear what Willow Creek is doing? Hey, did you, you should, do you know what they're doing with the kids' ministry? Hey, you know what they just built over there at Willow Creek? Do you know that, do you know that they do a drama every week before the message? Did you hear about the music at Willow Creek, the singing? It's, it's, it's out of this world. Did you know that Willow Creek grew 100%, you know, from last April to this year? A curse. And most of the comments were from my elders, which was, you know, and, and, and I, rem I remember saying to them one time, well, why don't we just close our doors and become a small group of Willow Creek? And they just kind of stared at me. And I think they were thinking, well, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we should do that. I don't know. But, but it was also a blessing because I learned so much from the pastor, Hybels, which made the trouble this past year that that church has been experiencing. Some of you have followed it. Very painful. Very painful and very personal to me. Anyway, after about a year and a half, the did you hear what Willow Creek did this week? Along with the fact that it just generally wasn't a good fit. It was a Plymouth Brethren Church, and I didn't even realize that till about six months in. And uh, you know, and, and uh, it just it just was not a, a great fit. I, I, I basically had had enough. Obviously, what I was doing wasn't cutting it, since our church had not grown at all. Now, uh, my thoughts, uh, you know, with church growth and how churches are, it really hadn't changed. I just figured that the reason that we didn't grow was from the willow effect. I mean, anybody within 100 miles is cursed by this church, and nobody wants to come to any other church. They all, they all want to go to the main, the, you know, the main show down the block. So I wasn't going to compete with that, and you know, with this amazing, couldn't compete with an amazing children's youth music, go on and on and on. But I still firmly believe that churches that were even moderately healthy led by pastors who were even lightly gifted. They grew. They just grew. 
If they stayed the same, that was not good. So we came back east, me with my tail between my legs, and it was a growing experience, not one that I say, gee, that was, you know, it was good, though. It was good. But, you know, it was like, uh, I wish that didn't happen kind of, kind of thing. And we settled in West Orange. I intended to get a job for the summer months, uh, then find a church situation, get back into the pastorate. Long story short, the summer job as a painter turned into seven long, very, very difficult years. That first Sunday that we settled in West Orange, uh, we went to the first church, and I said to Marianne, I said, uh, first church we go to, we're not going to spend two years searching for a church. If they're preaching the gospel, we're staying. It's not going to be perfect, but we're staying. The first church we visited was a church right over Route 280 called the West Essex Baptist Church, now the Crossing Church. And the pastor preached, and he preached out of the Bible, and I said, what do you think? And she said, you know, we'll, we'll stay here. So, so we did. And very soon after, the pastor found out that, about my education and what I had done, and eventually he, he grabbed me, and I became sort of an unpaid associate at the West Essex Baptist Church, this, this church. And when the pastor left, I, I slid into the role. Unfortunately, the church in the previous seven years that we were uh, there had regressed. It regressed quite a bit. And by the time I became pastor, we had about 80-some-odd people, some really odd uh, people in, in the building on any given Sunday morning. And uh, there were many challenges, many, many challenges when I first took over. And, but, but, but you know what I knew? The good part was finally here was my chance to test out my notion that healthy churches just grow and grow and grow. That's what they do, remember? That's good. Anything else is not good. It's just not. Well, within a short time, there were some signs of health actually beginning to appear here and there. And we did grow. Not at a pace to my liking, but we did grow. By the end of my first year, we were averaging about 88 people, which meant that uh, even if we weren't growing fast, we grew by a few, and at least the hemorrhaging had stopped. Because people were, were heading to the exits, you know, every Sunday there was somebody else who had left. So at least in that first year, we had established some sort of stability. Then the next year, we, we gained some more people. We skyrocketed to 102 people on a Sunday morning. The year after that, 121. Then 135. And then 161. We had doubled in four years. But my attitude was, we only doubled? That's it? I was embarrassed to tell people at denominational meetings how many people we had at our church and how slow the growth was. Little did I know then, those were the glory years. I will never forget a couple of years later, I was visiting a guy in, uh, in our church, and by this time, our, our growth had almost totally stopped, just a little bit. And he asked to have a meeting with me. So I went over to his house, and we sat in the backyard, and he said, I want to show you something. And he pulled out a sheet of paper from his pocket. I'll never forget it. He pulled out a sheet of paper from his top pocket. And on the paper was the previous year's attendance figures. 189 was for the previous year. Uh, then he, he directed me to look at the bottom of the page to the average of that present year. It was 176. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, uh, what about this? 
And at that moment, I felt like punching his teeth down his throat and saying, what about this? You know, and just boom, watching my fist go down his throat. But I realized that he had touched a nerve that was really hot-wired in me, really hot-wired. See, churches are supposed to grow. Ours wasn't. I had believed as gospel the grow-or-die mantra as the only message, in fact, the only metric to validate my call, my ministry, and the health of the church. So when the expected, anticipated, supposedly inevitable numerical results stopped coming, I was grasping it at nothing. Of course, I blamed myself. Obviously, God had seen my marriage wasn't what it should be. He saw that I was not nearly as good a father as at least a half dozen guys that I could point to in our church. I was still dogged by the glowing embers of sins of the flesh and of the mind. And it really didn't occur to me that saved by God's grace, kept by my works, had become the functioning philosophy of my spiritual life. At least when it, when it came to church stuff. Every time that I reached a point when I went into a dark period, and there, were, there were probably a half dozen over the years, uh, you know, when I said to myself, it's time to move on. It was because things didn't look as though they should look. They didn't look as how they were supposed to look. I was not measuring up. And I just wanted to get out. I wanted to run from Dodge City, run from my failure. See, healthy churches grow. That's what they're supposed to do. That's good. Ours had not for a number of years. Bad. Small churches are bad. Large churches are good. There's just so much a man can take, right? I'm, I'm convinced, just as a little side note, I am convinced that the high rate of movement among clergy and, uh, you know, guys who are in professional sort of ministry, I think it has more to do with personal disappointment than God's leading. God's leading me to this, uh, really leading? Or you just, you know what, you're done. It ain't working and you can't deal with, you know, what you, your expectations anymore and you run. I think vocational ministry leaders blame a lot of our pride and arrogance on God. So I traveled through the ups and downs cycle, one up, down, you know, good for a while, until the spring of 2018, last year. That spring, I went into one of those really dark valleys, but this one was different. This one felt different. So many things had happened since 2014 that were just difficult to deal with at our church. And personally, those who were around at that time know. And I came to the conclusion, the hardened conclusion, that my ministry at the crossing was over. It was done. It seemed that nothing was happening. Our staff had decreased. We couldn't find an associate pastor that was humble and would fit the bill. I no longer had the energy to just pick up my game and, you know what, for the team, you know, get in there and lift things up. I just couldn't do it anymore. I always feared becoming a maintenance type of man. I mean, being a pastor, you know, keeping things going. Just, you know, good is, 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 is good enough. Don't think too high. Don't dream too high. Dreaming's for kids and idealists. And about that time, a lot of stuff started falling rapidly through the cracks. And I said to myself, I may not be moving ahead, but there is no way I'm moving backwards. No way. Okay, I failed. It's over. And I am out. And I had come to the conclusion that if I didn't find something soon, I was resigning anyway. I really didn't see, I really couldn't see at that moment 
that God had actually positioned me for growth. So I began to literally beg God at that time, beg him to, to, to bring something else along, bring anything else along. After a while, when nothing came, I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I could, I could be a painter again. I'm a pretty decent painter. I could support my family. I mean, this, is, this was the mindset in the spring of 2018. And I remember interviewing Pastor Peter, who's our associate pastor now, during a, a lunchtime. Peter, remember this? At the Global Leadership Summit. And there was a break in, in August, and I'm interviewing him, and he's talking about, you know, just church and his philosophy. And I'm going, what am I doing, man? I'm not even going to be here. What, what, this guy is going to think he's coming here and I'm gone and, you know, what, this, there's something wrong here. I'm not going to go into all the details, folks, uh, except to say that at the beginning of last fall, almost exactly a year ago, something broke in me. And somehow, all at once, I realized that my understanding of what a generally healthy church Churches that God blessed was wrong. That the thing that I had always grew up believing, you know, up and to the right, up and to the right for the chart, that that wasn't necessarily true at all. I no longer believed this gospel, the grow or die mantra, as the only message, the only metric to validate my call and my ministry and the health of the church. In the book of Genesis, Jacob, at a pivotal time in his life, he wrestled with an angel of the Lord. And after that wrestling match, he limped away. And he was never the same again. He couldn't be. And right about that time, almost exactly a year ago, I repented. I repented of wrong-headed thinking concerning God's favor. And I began to look at this place differently. It's not that I didn't think God was, you know, in that time, you know, God wasn't working. You know, I knew God was working. I saw things. It wasn't, it wasn't that. But now my eyes were opened in a different way to see it all much more clearly. Since then, I have been in a process where I'm slowly learning to let go. It's tough, huh? Some of you? It's tough. That is the fruit, I think, of the repentance that I had a year ago. And more and more, I find myself saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Repentance has a way of helping you see that. It was right around that time when a number of people started to come to me. Really funny, coincidental, all at once. And started saying things like, God's about to initiate a new season at the crossing. God's about to expand your territory. God's about to send fire. And after the fire, God's about to send the rain. People whose spirituality I really respected. You know, I knew they weren't just, you know, like we, we just want to get on the pastor's good side. You know, you're doing a great job, and this church is going to be 5,000. You know, it's like, these are people who I knew, you know, had, had, they, they had deeper roots with God than to do something, you know, like that, so crass. So they came. So what am I to think about that? What am I to think about that? Am I, was I excited to hear that? Yeah, you know, I was excited if it was going to happen. But here's the difference. I didn't need it anymore. I really didn't need it anymore. And as people said that stuff to me, I became aware that if God was going to do a new work, then he probably has been positioning the crossing church for some time 
as he positioned me for change. And folks, I have to tell you, as I look around, I believe that's so. I see people coming into leadership positions that, you know, we kind of had prayed about and dreamed about. You know, not just Pastor Peter, who, you know, we went against all my instincts in waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And when is this going to, and maybe it's never going to happen. And finally, you know, we got Peter, and we have a great man. We really do. We have a great man. But, folks, I have to tell you something. Even though I think God is positioning us, uh, and people saying, you know, status quo is not good enough anymore. There's something more that's needed. There really is something more that's needed. And I have to say, as your pastor, maybe thinking more clearly than he ever has, I, I, I see a great need for big-time repentance on the part of the cross and church. And, folks, I have to tell you right now, if you're here visiting today, or if you're lightly associated with the church, my next few minutes are, are for more the regulars. And, and, and we, love, we love the fact that you're here. But this is mostly for, you know, for the folks that they're at the crossing and they're part of what we're doing. So as I thought about it and I thought about what God wanted us to repent of, I, I believe he told me three things. Number one, I think we have a great need to repent that the Christian life can be lived alone. I believe that's so. That meeting with God's people, that becoming more intimately involved in our brothers' and sisters' lives, that letting them become a much deeper part of our lives is somehow optional. It's a nice add-on. We need to call this attitude, which has convinced us that we are too busy to invest in each other more intimately, we need to call it what it is. Do you know what it's called? It's called sin. Because I believe that as I look at the New Testament, that one of the ways that God grows people, one of the primary ways, not just one, like, oh, yeah, it's 3% here. One of the primary ways that God grows people is through other Christians. When we rub up against them, when they annoy us and we have to forgive, when we have to love the unlovely, when we have to, you know what, uh, in a moment's notice sometimes, go out and just do stuff that we normally wouldn't do. Be with people who, if we passed them in the street, we would never be friends with them. Never. But now, because we've been put together, we love them. You know, what, what, was, what was this group saying over here? People, you know, Phil, Dr. Phil Booth said, you know, I went to this group, and I love them. Then I went to the next group, and I love them. And he, all of a sudden, he's got three groups, and he loves all the people there, you know? Is he just a loving guy? Maybe, but I think because... Because God used those people to speak into his life. I think that's why, more than anything else. And yet we think that we could go it alone. Folks, we need to call it what it is. Those of us who are too busy for others, it's sin. And we need to repent of it today. Folks, there's only one thing to be done with sin. It's repentance. And after repentance, display the fruits of that repentance. God's been speaking to many of you for the need to do this. One of, the, one of the best ways that I know to begin that process is to join a life group. Is it the only way? No, absolutely not. But it's the primary way that we try to foster that here at the Crossing Church. If you are too busy to invest in the lives of your brothers and sisters, can I just say this? You just are too busy. 
You're too busy, and you need to make changes in your life. And there are some of you that need to repent of a go-it-alone attitude. You need, you need to repent. You know, because really what we're saying when we say that is, is spiritually speaking, you know what, uh, we're not really interested in growth. You know, we're not, we're not interested in going the next step. You need to repent of that. We have a great need to repent. Many of us need to repent of thinking that service is optional. You go, what do you mean service is optional? It's not, that's not the problem at the crossing church. Well, as I, as I saw people standing, like some of the people are, you know, at, we value every person that stood. But there's a lot of people who are not, and there's a lot of people who are not here this morning, who if you, if you cornered them this morning and said, what, what church do you go to? They go to the crossing church. We go to the crossing church. It, you, know, you know how we find out who goes to the crossing church? Easter. Easter Sunday. That's who goes to the crossing church or who say they, say they do. Okay? And, and if, if we could expand the auditorium and bring them all here in one service, there'd be a vast majority of people that weren't standing up. And yet Paul said, for we are God's handiwork, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Folks, let me say this very bluntly. We were saved to serve. We were saved to serve, to serve our God and to serve his people. Are you serving? Are you serving in any way? We have a great need at the Crossing Church of more people who will serve. Serve in our children's ministry. Serve in the coffee ministry. And thanks for those who, when I made the announcement a couple weeks ago, stepped up. Thank you. We need more. We need about two dozen more people to serve on FIT, the First Impressions team. On our tech team. In the, I don't know anything about tech. Well, you know what? We'll teach you to sit there at the back end of the bridge. At the Renew Life Center. To, to do anything from babysitting to walk along one-on-one with some of these women who for the first time are having people really care for them. Do you know the life change that's going on at Renew Life Center? Renew life. Boy, that says it all. And we need people to, to come and who maybe will invest a couple of hours a week and say, you know what? I will sit with this woman and I will help her learn what she needs to learn to pass her, G, uh, her, her, her equivalency exam. I'll take her down to a to, uh, uh, motor vehicle. God help us to motor vehicle and help her get her license. I'll do what it needs to take, what, what, what must, must be done. There are so many Christians today who are down and who are fighting depression, folks. You know that as well as I do. Could it be that our inner sadness, at least in part, can be traced to the fact that we have been created to do good works of service and we have just decided that we're not interested? Is that a possibility that we have created to operate a certain way and we have decided not to operate that way and our inner soul and being is frustrated? Beloved, you need to repent and you need to show the fruit of repentance by finding out where you can serve, whether it is inside the walls of this church or outside the walls of this church. We don't try to hoard everybody in. We want to send people out. Also, there are many of us who continue to be under the mistaken notion that my money is my own. 
that God has provided for me lavishly so that I could spend it on what I want to spend it on, on my desires. Folks, I have to tell you, the things that we are most concerned about, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn one day, i got to tell you. None of it will be left. And we are guilty of robbing God. That's not my words. That's the words of the prophet. Malachi said this, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. These are God's words to his people. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under, listen, this is God speaking. You are under a curse. Your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord God Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. Have you been robbing God? I've heard many times statements like, many times, statements like this. I really want to start giving to God's work when, and then there's a whole list. It, there's a list of when I finish paying off my student loans. When, when, you know what, we've been paying the mortgage back for a year, but we're really not sure how it's all going to work out. Maybe in a couple more years, you know, in the new house. When the business gets going to a certain point, when I save enough for the new car. God's people have always shown their faith in him and their trust in him to provide and their thanks to him for all he has done and all the promises that he has given to them by lavishly giving back to God. And I am convinced that one of the reasons so many Christians struggle in their finances and struggle in their life is because they have never given God first place with their money. And that is true here at the Crossing Church. Have you been robbing God? The only personal testimony that I can give you concerning this is that in our worst financial days, which lasted a long time, i got to tell you, it wasn't like, gee, you know what, I remember it was in February where we had a tough time. It lasted for years when the kids were young, years. And I always remember, and I remember when this happened, because I said, I always want to remember this. I want to remember this. I remember going down to, uh, you know, the local uh, stationery and, and buying a newspaper, because, you know, it was before you could do this, and it was, you know, it was either watch television or read the newspaper. And I remember having to buy the Star-Ledger, which was 35 cents, even though I wanted to buy the New York Times, which was 50 cents, because all I had was 35 cents. I didn't have the extra 15 cents. And there were some weeks where I said, man, I don't even know, <laughs> look, I'm not doing this, but I, there were some weeks where I, I, like, I said, I don't know how we're going to, we got these two kids, and how are we going to feed? And all of a sudden, Grandpa Louie would show up, Marion's father, and he'd take us out, not to McDonald's. He'd take us out to our restaurant because he, he was a chef, you know, his whole life for 70 years or whatever it was, he was a chef, and he would take us to these nice restaurants. So we went from, you know, are we going to have anything to going out and having this lavish meal? And he did that so many times, I, I can't even tell you. And it was God providing. How many times when we didn't have health insurance, we had no health insurance for years, 
And, and, and those, we would have it for a while, then we wouldn't have it, then we'd have it, then we wouldn't have it. Marianne never got pregnant when she wasn't on insurance, when we didn't have insurance. It just happened to be, you know, it was, it, it was that. Uh, the kids in the years that, um, uh, when we didn't have the insurance, they were amazingly healthy years. Incredible. I looked back, and I couldn't see it at the time, but I looked back. God had protected us. And you know why he protected us? Because even in the worst days, sometimes we gave five dollars. And I said, we will always give, because if we give, God will protect us. He will care for his children. He won't leave us alone. One day, Jesus stood outside the temple as people came by, and they dropped money into the offering plate. Uh, and, you know, you know, a lot of the guys were just well-situated in front of the temple, and they're throwing in gold coins and silver coins, and then a, 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 a widow she came, comes by, and folks, the most helpless person in the ancient culture was a widow. No one to take care of her. And she, she dropped two copper coins, pennies, pennies in those days. And Jesus happened to be standing there, and Jesus took notice. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, Put in everything, all she had to live on. And so you know, the story ends there and you go, well, that's nice. She probably went home and died then. You know, she, she had, at least she could have had another piece of bread with two, with two pennies. You know what? The story doesn't end there. Because time and again, we see in the New Testament, and I believe 100% that God took care of it, we see things like Jesus speaking in another place, give and it will be given to you, a good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. God's a lavish giver. We don't have to worry about that. Have you, crossing church, speaking to the church, have you been robbing God? Have you? Are you a, a young teenager? And, well, God doesn't expect a teen or a young adult in college to get in, into this stuff. Giving, really? You want to be blessed by God? Start giving to God. And start showing the fruits of repentance immediately. Folks, these are other areas. Uh, you know, these are the three that God strongly impressed on me there's pride in relationships and you know there's purity of heart and mind and a lot of different stuff but these people uh, these things that i've been talking about i think are what god wanted me to say to just a few i'm probably not even talking to everybody here but to whoever it's for there it is and i go back and i think about those people who have said in the last year that the crossing church is on the cusp of a new day and a new work. Am I to believe them? Are they right? I have to tell you something. I honestly think that they are. And there is only one thing that's holding God back. And I believe this, folks. I have to tell you, as strongly as I believe anything, there needs to be repentance on the part of the people of the crossing church. I wish I could do that for you, but I can't. Only you can do business with God. And let me ask you this. What do you think you'll be met with 
if you come in weakness and humility and admit, admit failure in all areas of your life, can I tell you, what you who you'll be met with? You will be met with a loving father whose arms are wide open and who will say, I have been waiting for you to return. That's who will meet you. A father who wants the very best for his children. There are people among us that think that God is about to bring fire down. That he's about to flood us with life-giving rain. And I feel that God in past days has been positioning our church and our people for a new and a great work. I believe it is going to happen. To that end, let me just tell you, this may not seem like a big announcement now. It's like, that's it? But, you know, to that end, uh, to the end of, of continuing to prepare, to whatever metaphor you want to use, arranging the wood, digging up the soil and planting more seed, to that end, um, on, on November the 10th, we're going we're gonna to start two services here at the Crossing Church, one at 9 and one at 11. We've tried to do it before. We tried to do it five years ago. And you know what? It just, it wasn't the time, and it wasn't right, and it didn't, you know, for a lot of people, it didn't feel right, and we were trying to push it, and we were trying to, you know, kind of maneuver it in, but you know what? It really feels right now, and I have no illusions that all of a sudden, we're going to have two services that are filled up, none at all, but I have to tell you something. I believe that we are going to continue to arrange the wood and plant the seed and pour water over it, and I believe God will answer if his people repent. And get ready. He will answer with fire and with rain. And he will bring the increase. I believe that with all my heart. And there's going to be more announcements that will come as we get closer. I believe that God has positioned the crossing church for growth in every way you can measure growth. But before it comes, we must come. We must come to him and if need be, we must repent. We need to repent of our self-sufficiency. We need to repent of our selfishness, both of time and of money. Basically, we need to repent, folks, of self. Doesn't it always come down to that? It just always comes down to that, basically. Are you willing to do that? I want you to stand right now. I want you to bow your heads. Has God been speaking to you, Crossing Church? This is family stuff now. We, we love you, visitor. We love you. This is, this, is, this is about the family right now. Has God been speaking to you in these last minutes? saying, I've been, I've been positioning you. I have been positioning your life, your relationship that has caused so much problem. I have been positioning you as a father, as a mother, as a boss, as an employee. I've been positioning this church, your town, but before I can bring the increase, you need to repent. 
And you know, repentance is not some, you know, someone hits you in the head or you're falling down and, and weeping and crying. Sometimes, sometimes weeping and crying does accompany true repentance. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't always. Repentance merely means, the word merely means you're going in the wrong direction. All of a sudden you stop and you turn around and you go in another direction. Are you, has God been calling you to go in another direction? Can you see how God has been positioning you for growth in your life? If you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit this day, do not delay. Folks, I beg you. I beg you for your life and for your family and for your workplace and for this church. I beg you, do not turn a deaf ear to that. Father, this is Vision Sunday. You know, God, you know I was preparing this and saying, this isn't exactly a rah-rah message. I bet you some even think of it as sort of depressing. But I don't. I see it as the very beginning of, of great things that you want to do with us. And Father, we come right now and we do the only thing that we can do to go in a new direction. We repent. We ask forgiveness for our sins, which are many. We receive your gracious forgiveness that Jesus Christ won for us on the cross. Those sins have already been paid for. I don't need to pay for them anymore. I just need to receive forgiveness. And then God, please bring the rain. Please bring the rain. We want to see growth in our lives. We want to see growth in this church, oh God. We want to see you working like you have never worked in our midst before. Exceedingly, abundantly, all that we could ask or even think. But we know it starts as repentance. And this day, the best way we know how, oh God, we humble ourselves and we, uh, we ask your pardon and your forgiveness. And we receive it this day. And now we stand and we commit ourselves to the fruits of repentance. Whatever that might be that you call us to do, God, whatever that might be, we will obey. Speak to us, O oh God. Lead us. We are your people. We are here. Send me. Send us, we pray this day in Jesus' name.